Side Broadcast, the best Vox casting either side of the breach. The dim light through the nearby window signaled the coming dawn, while Nicodem withdrew to attend to matters in another part of the tower. Karai retired to the enormous library, reluctant to spend more time with him than necessary. She was nervous that he would follow through with her end of the bargain, and she needed time to process the incredible turn of events that had befallen her. With no great interest in reading, and certainly not prepared to begin research, she merely sought isolation. Still, she browsed the volumes, most of them ancient by her reckoning, and the titles on the spine written in the alien script of the Neverborn. She moved slowly past the many books, touching them gingerly, absently as her mind wandered. The serpent ring at her neck pulsed against her throat, startling her, as a faint whisper to her right said what might have been the single word, Gorgon. Her head jerked towards the sound, though there was no one there. Her wide eyes stared intently. The ring throbbed again, and one book among the great multitude in her field of vision seemed to beat at the same moment as the ring. Pressing the coiled serpent against her throat, she approached that book and pulled it from the shelf. It was small and thin, completely unremarkable amidst its fellows. On its olive leather cover, it bore the same fluid, spiralling script as the others. Finding a desk, she looked through the book filled with the strange, spidery alien script. She could read nothing within. These were from a different world, written by a people not at all human. Still, the manner of the script was unlike anything she could have expected. Symbols crawled across the page. She flipped through the passages curiously, but with no comprehension. Deep in the heart of the book, a single character seemed to jump at her, as the circular symbols separated overlapping one another. She flipped the pages more frantically, seeing the same effect. Alien characters jumping off the page. 
As she thumbed through the book, an image formed, twisting, winding, uncoiling. It became a serpent. She became frantic, gasping as the serpent head formed, rose upon the flashing pages, ready to strike. Don't strain your eyes too much on those, girl, Mortimer said, his grating voice behind her. She looked up from the book, her heart racing. You'll learn to see through the table before you figure those letters out. There's plenty for you to read, though. The master's transcribed a number of books into English, if and you can read. Never had much call for it myself. You can find them in the shelves beneath the statue there, he said gruffly. His clothes were soiled with fresh earth, but that scent was ubiquitous in this tower populated by the freshly risen dead. The smell of fresh soil amidst decaying flesh was merely stronger while Mortimer was near. Indeed, as Karai sat there and considered this man, a host of animated dead followed him into the chamber, carrying several large wooden boxes filled with more books. They dutifully unpacked and stacked them as commanded, and attended to a variety of other chores about the library. To her, they seemed merely automatons. If she were to walk by them or even bump into them, they did not seem to be aware of her, but simply walked around her to continue with their tasks. She pushed the book aside, though it seemed to call to her, compelling her to continue reading. She resisted the lure, afraid of it. Instead, she considered the events that led her to this towering observatory and the tutelage of a resurrectionist. The group, she had thought, might be mere superstition to scare newcomers to this world. Now, apparently, she was one. In the relative silence of the library, Karai experienced a peace she hadn't felt for some time since the death of her lover. The certain knowledge that her revenge would come in time had filled her with contentment. The purpose granted by her new life in this macabre tower filled her with a sense of confidence and comfort that she was entering an exciting new world. A distant bell resounded above them, breaking her from her reverie. It came not from the observatory, but from an adjoining tower. The animated dead in the library's chamber issued an eerie chorus of moans and abandoned their labours. In unison they shambled quickly from the room, and Karai became aware of the scent of smoke. Though quite rotund, Mortimer acted with surprising speed. He knocked over the newly stacked books, racing toward the exit. Pausing momentarily at the door, he looked back at Karai's expression of bewilderment. Come on, girl, that's the alarm. We've uninvited guests. Karai leapt after him. Racing out to a balcony, both leaned over the railing and gazed into the courtyard below. The bell tower stood alone in the centre of a large expanse. The space between the building and a perimeter of reinforced barriers was filled with a small militia of Nicodem's walking dead, more than fifty strong. Nicodem had explained that it was necessary to guard against the dangers of the quarantine zone, wandering covens of Neverborn and patrolling guild guards. She knew, too, of another purpose for the protection. To keep safe the growing army intended to invade and raise the guild's centre of power in Malifaux. The zombie militia, however did not struggle against a horde of nightmarish Neverborn, or a guild contingency that had discovered them. Karai was surprised to see a raid by what appeared to be a typical street gang, though larger in number than she might have imagined. The scuttlers breached the courtyard's barriers and fell against the waiting zombies. Mortimer called out and, leaning over the rail, pointed toward a distant alley. There, behind the churning melee, was a single man dressed in a rough leather coat. He had a flute at his lips and the dirge he played reached even into the heights of the tower overhead. 
The song inspired a sudden tremor that shook the ground, and suddenly the streets began to flood with a great tide of sewer rats. The storm drains and manhole covers burst, and the countless vermin boiled up from beneath the streets. The tide crashed against the melee and swept through the struggling scuttlers. Pouring through combatants, the legion of voracious vermin overwhelmed the defenders, who seemed to melt as their flesh was rent and consumed. A stream of vermin stretched from the perimeter and into the gates of the tower itself. With the defenders pulled back, the gangers rushed forward and crashed against the vaulted doors of the tower. With their chains, clubs, and knives, they beat upon the door to bring it down. Behind them, the piper casually strode forward, the tide of rats and gang members parting before him to make a clear path to the tower. Though Mortimer and Karai craned forward, the man and his entourage of ruffians disappeared from sight. She turned from the railing and darted back into the tower to climb the stairs. Mortimer called after her, but the lithe girl was far faster than his own meaty body. Still he chased after her, holding his hat to his head. It was up to him to hold the tower and keep the girl alive until Nicodem appeared. As he clambered up the stairs, he muttered a short prayer that Nicodem arrived soon. As if on cue, Nicodem strode around a corner above them and descended the stairs with three katana-wielding zombies behind him. All were in various degrees of decomposition, though their clothing marked them as unmistakable descendants of the three kingdoms. Karai, upstairs, he commanded tersely. Mortimer, with me. They quickly descended the stairs. Karai was tempted to follow, both curious and anxious to help. Should the defense of Nicodem's sanctuary fall, she would too. Now, with urgency to live, and hope to reunite spiritually with Francis, she could not accept defeat after coming to embrace hope. Reluctantly, she ascended the broad staircase, seeking shelter in a room far to the back of the great structure. Hamlin the Plague surveyed the foyer and up the winding stairs as his swarming army poured around him. Great stone columns stretched upward to support lofty rafters. He offered no fear for his own safety, though Nicodem directed all of his sword-wielding zombies upon him. As each sprang forward toward Hamlin, nearly tearing itself apart in its ardent fervor to fulfill its command, one of the scuttlers intercepted the attack and dragged the zombie aside to be overwhelmed by rats. For his part, Nicodem would quickly raise any of the boys that fell to a zombie's attack, replenishing his own ranks even as Hamlin continued to worm their way into the conflict. It was a grotesque balance of power. Nicodem realized the grim truth that the balance would eventually tip in Hamlin's favor, as he would run out of both zombies and the vessels by which he might replenish them, while Hamlin had a seemingly endless horde of rats. Being outnumbered and overwhelmed by the opposition was a feeling wholly unique to Nicodem, and he loathed it. Before the inevitable tide could turn against him, he crushed the fragile outer crust of a soul stone, basking momentarily in the milky-white cloud that enveloped him before harnessing its power as his own. He absorbed it, twisting it within him, tying it to his own spiritual manifestation. Settlers upon Malifaux knew him as the Undertaker, but his understanding of the dead went far beyond that mere act of preparing a body for its final rest. He also had the ability to give a corpse the will to walk again. He was powerful in that regard. Nicodem commanded the very power of death and decay. One of his katana-wielding zombies, swarmed by voracious rats, would soon fall. He released the dark energy teeming within him, 
centering it upon two youths converging upon one of the remaining Nipponese zombies, itself wounded and battered. Oddly similar to Hamlin's plague, Nicodem's spell of decay set into their flesh, devouring it as if seconds were years. The boys aged and withered, eyes rolling into their skulls as the skin around them grew pallid, gaunt, and finally desiccated in a death that looked decades old. All of the rats nearest the boys suffered the same fate, drawing away from their prey, shaking violently before expelling their last breath. The effect upon his zombie, already dead and suffering the effects of a natural decay, found itself suddenly renewed and stood defiantly against a still-growing horde of vermin beyond the battered doors. Hamlin strode forward, humming loudly as he now simply carried the flute at his side. Where he walked, Scuttler and Rat stepped quickly aside, though neither made any indication of acknowledging the presence of the other. Hamlin's throng was an extension of his vast will. He stared intently upon Nicodem, unconcerned of the melee around him as he waded through it unscathed. Where is it? Hamlin asked above the din of combat his voice hollow and echoing more from within him than about the cavernous chamber. "'Where is what?' Nicodem asked, spreading his arms in exaggerated innocence. "'This is about some trinket, perhaps?' he asked, though he knew it must be much more. "'Some artifact?' "'I am a collector of rare finds and curios, I admit.' He tried to sound dismissive of the danger mounting below him. He whispered to Mortimer on the step just behind and above him. Second floor escape. Mortimer knew the path and the plan, and waited for his cue to bolt. Nicodem addressed Hamlin still on the foyer below. Have your, well, shall we say colleagues, wait outside, and we can discuss the return of this item you seek. I've come for the key, Hamlin said, in that disconcerting vibration. His mouth stood agape, the lips unnecessary in the forming of words. Then you've made a small mistake, I'm afraid though one that can be easily forgiven. You see, I have no... Hamlin ignored him. The Gorgon stirs. It will finish what it began centuries before. My ascension must come first. The time is nigh. He strode forward, staring still upon Nicodem while the battle waged around him. Moths fluttered about his face and neck, and a beetle crawled from beneath the exposed collar of his shirt to turn back once it hit the light. As he walked... An occasional maggot or other carrion insect fell from him. Though clearly an agent of death, Nicodem knew the stranger was no resurrectionist. He was something quite different. Earth is dead, Hamlin said. This world is dying. I've come to claim the keys of another. The sound of gunfire beyond the walls and outer walls carried to both masters, and they turned towards it. Mortimer tugged on Nicodem's shoulder. Guild. Yes, Nicodem agreed. Prime the charges, quickly. We must retrieve Ankoku if possible. On the upper level if I can buy us the time. Mortimer grunted and bound up the stairs. Nicodem turned back to his unearthly foe below. The conquering arrows of your pestilence may herald the final days of this world, but it is death who marshals the legions of the damned. Nicodem spoke with foreboding as he urged the dead bodies of the settlers to rise to his command. They gathered quickly around Hamlin. The mass of undead rushed upon him at the same moment a booming blast struck high upon the foyer's wall opposite Nicodem. The wall broke open, and two fluttering mechanical constructs shot through the hole to survey the battleground. 
Nicodem made a final command to the remaining zombie mob below to block the staircase as he turned and hobbled away in search of Karai. The Watcher constructs focused upon the battle. They saw Hamlin ignore the undead standing before him, inflicting upon them the blight at his command. Even in death the plague consumed their rotting flesh. Nicodem reached the second floor landing and turned in time to see the buxom form of Lady Justice climb into the hole made above them. She was blind, or at least blindfolded with a dark red handkerchief strapped tightly across her eyes, though her head scanned back and forth across the conflict below her. Strawberry blonde hair billowed into his fortress, falling in thick curls around the immense sword she held by a chief before her. The tight corset around her torso displayed her ample curves, though anyone having an opportunity to watch her work came to understand that her clothing fulfilled a need of function, never fashion. Hesitating no longer, she leapt straight out and fell more than thirty feet. As she descended, her sword came free of its sheath, and she somersaulted in a tucked position with her knees against her chest and her sword thrust behind her. As her feet came up over her head, her body jerked around, gaining momentum. The long sword came up and over, following her movement, cleaving a zombie in half as her boots hit the ground. The sword dug deep into the stone tile, and the two halves of the zombie fell to either side. She rose from the crouch, pulling the sword from the stone with a tug that left loose pebbles across the great scar on its surface. Nicodem gnashed his teeth. Even with her combat prowess, no human could cut bone and body in half with a blow. And if he had somersaulted more than thirty feet through the air, he would have simply broken something. He hated the woman. Her sword struck out and beheaded or literally disarmed one zombie after another while deftly avoiding the damned gang members that followed Hamlin. She no doubt mistook them as innocent. Hamlin ignored it all, pressing toward the staircase. Nicodem turned to flee, but stopped short as the rapid clanking of metal sounded from below. He turned in time to see the narrow blade of the accursed judge fly straight like an arrow, the quick clinking from the attached chain trailing after it. The sword sank through the back of Hamlin and out through his chest, sticky remains of various vermin staining the glistening metal. You are under arrest, resurrectionist the judge said from beyond the entry. Nicodem fled. Maybe those death marshals will be good for something after all, he thought. Mistaking Hamlin for the resurrectionist commanding the zombies was a fortuitous twist of fate, and a great mistake that might garner him invaluable time. He still hated the lot of them, and hoped the whole observatory came down to consume them all. Hamlin ignored the blade protruding from his chest and continued walking. His humming brought more boys and rats to fill in behind him, and they swarmed Lady Justice and the judge. Hamlin ascended the stairs, unimpeded. Karai and Koku had found an abandoned room at the far end of the vast building. The door's hinges barely gave, and she pulled and pulled against the long, rusted iron until a small gap allowed her to squeeze through. Nothing but a rat could squeeze through there, she thought, unknowingly foreshadowing the swarm assembled in the round foyer below her. She closed her eyes. Karai stood only a few dozen yards from the door, poised defiantly against the intrusion. Her hands were balled into fists, and her nails had cut into the palms of her own hands, so that a slight trickle of blood dripped through her tightly clenched fingers. Her little body shook, but not with fear. There was no fear left in this girl. She shook with anger, and that fury manifested itself as an intense heat that radiated from her. It was unnatural. The manifestation of something magical, something frightening. 
She had to summon her Akirio, her own spirit. Only it could protect her. She saw it in her mind. She saw the memory of it killing Gideon in his cell. She saw it kill all of the guardsmen that had been in the room that morning at the Gong. The morning they'd come to kill her but taken Francis instead. She saw the memory of her own spirit hunt and kill those that had hunted her, that had led Gideon to her and Francis. She grew agitated, both at the memory and pain inflicted upon her, and by her inability to call forth the great vengeful spirit that should be hers to command. She had felt the power to summon lost spirits in the nether regions between worlds just hours before with Nicodem, but now she could not feel even a strand of that intoxicating power. She trembled, impotent and desperate. The Akirio was her spirit, but it was a spirit of vengeance and did not come to her. Her fists beat against her upper thighs in frustration. The sound of the conflict grew close as footsteps approached down the hall. He came straight toward her, spending no time checking any other room. She sobbed at the futility and inability to carry out her destiny. Here, on the precipice of calling Francis back, this strange man had come to strike her down. She felt the great weight of that inevitability and grew enraged. A hand, soft and fleshy, grasped the open edge of the door. Several flies droned around the fingers, and a long centipede crawled around the door and down to the floor. Francis, she whispered pitifully. Take me with you, she pleaded. In answer, an image of something dark worked at the back of her mind. She thought of release and the crossing of the great river into the valley of death. It was a horrible story about death told since she was very young. The innocent dead would be preyed upon by the great Datsuba spirit, fierce and terrible. Those who sinned, however, received a more terrible fate. The Datsuba would cut the clothing from the body, exposing the sinner. Then she would cut small layers of flesh from the body, flaying swathes of flesh in payment for each sin committed. She saw her sins play out in her mind as she could see the memory of her Akirio enact her revenge. She saw each act of prostitution she had succumbed to, all the weight of her sins. She would not be allowed to cross the great river. She would never rejoin Francis. The fleshy fingers at the door heaved, and its hinges groaned reluctantly. He whistled absently as he stepped into the room. His song and his demeanour were in complete contrast to Karai's own. He was cool and stoic. And where Karai's rage was so obvious in the visible soul flame burning about her head like an unholy halo, Hamlin gave no sign of emotion or stress. Karai lifted her head, and her eyes were possessed of that same raging fire. Her voice sounded as if it were a demon's roar from deep out of the belly of hell. It was a single word, a word foreign to Hamlin who was born in the silent darkness that followed this world's spiritual decay. Hers was a word and an ideal honoured for thousands of years by the fearless people of the three kingdoms. In the heat of that moment, she lifted her eyes to heaven and called out with a voice far larger than her tiny body would suggest, Fukushu! With the word, revenge. The fire that wreathed her burst forward, taking the shape of an old woman bent and twisted. She shuffled forward with heavy feet and claws that held a long, thin, skinning knife. She cackled softly as she walked, saying, Oh, the sins are a great weight. We'll take some weight from you. And the Datsobar spirit giggled shrilly. Oh, this one's weight is great indeed. Its quickly shuffling feet took her closer to Hamlin, still disregarding the spirit's presence. 
The Gorgon is here, he said more to himself than to Karai or the Datsuba. I sense it. The spirit lunged forward, easily slicing into the flesh of Hamlin's arm. In swift jerks of her gossamer arms, the clothing and outer flesh were cut away. Maggots poured from the exposed and gaping wound. Beetles, centipedes, and small carrion insects writhed across the Datsuba's long knife. Hamlin pressed his staff against its forehead. It stabbed at him as the Black Plague consumed even its spiritual form. Hamlin lurched forward, grasping Karai's arm before she could react. Before she realized it, she was staring into the eyes of this intruder. Where her eyes burned with rage-fueled fire, his were hollow and empty, devoid of soul or emotion. They were dark passages into the vacant recesses of his being, a being that held no redeemable virtue or humane concern. She saw, though, that even that emptiness was an illusion, that he was no man at all, but a crawling mass of vermin that crawled within the sockets of his eyes and across the open wound on his arm. He held her to the wall by the wrists, as the pests within him moved from his open wound and across her skin. His song ended, but the room continued its throbbing pulse. Every item and every surface possessed of this carnal cadence. He spoke softly, nonchalantly. At last I have found you. The key has wandered far, it seems. It all happened in the span of a heartbeat. That man grasped her arm and the illusion of his humanity disappeared. From the swarm of vermin that created his shape, three white grubs burrowed into her flesh. She gasped and wrenched her arm away, but already the sickness in those worms had taken hold. The joints of her fingers and wrists swelled with black bulbs of puffs before her whole hand was consumed in black. She screamed in agony as her hand died, sending daggers of pain coursing through her arm. One hand held her to the wall, and the other went around her neck. She could not focus upon the summoning of more spirits, but wasn't sure she even knew how to. Instead of choking her, his hand wrapped around the dainty chain and jerked it free of her neck. As the silver band with the winding snake of emerald slowly spun on the chain he held before his grotesque face, she saw the gemstone snake head pulse brightly. Smiling, intent now only upon the ring, he discarded Karai, tossing her to the corner. She writhed in pain, screaming as the pestilence consumed her. Hamlin reached into his coat and drew out the device that had lain in a necropolis beneath Malifaux for hundreds of years. It was a flat, thick piece of lacquered metal inlaid with a myriad of interconnected, delicate gears, similar to the inner workings of a watch, and decorated with a crescent moon and a collection of stars. The hinges at the side of the metal plate allowed Hamlin to open the device like a book. Inside was similarly clustered with gears and levers and springs. More gems were set in the workings of the device, and these suggested the motion of the stars in the night sky. Set in the orbit of the largest gear was a red stone, to match a red star that never moved in the sky above Malifaux. It was as she howled in terrible pain, as the grip of pestilence claimed her arm, that Nicodem's commanding voice filled the chamber. Come, he called, and it was like the blast of a trumpet in the final days of the world. He saw the blackness of her arm and ran to her, wary of Hamlin turning upon them, but the strange creature was too intent upon the device before him. Nicodem saw the grotesque blackness devouring Karai's arm, knowing that she had only moments to live. He pulled his last soul stone from a pocket within his coat and began to teach his young resurrectionist apprentice the most non-intuitive and complex uses of soul stone power. Consumed by death-bearing decay, the powerful creature intent upon their demise merely arm spans away and the guild fighting their way to them. He slapped her smartly as she screamed, 
Stop it, he bellowed. Focus and we may save you. He shook her violently, and she stopped screaming, though she stared at the blackness quickly racing up her arm. Look at me, he said, shaking her again. You must do this. I cannot do it for you. He held the soul stone and pressed it into her other hand. As you crush it, you will feel the spiritual energy coalesce around you. It will urge you to bind it to your will, to release it in focused arcana. Magic, he corrected, seeing her confusion. Do not bind it to a spell. As tempting and easy as it will feel. You must resist that compulsion or you will be lost. Bind it not to your will, but to your form, your body. He touched her chest. Bind it within. Absorb it. He could spare no more time as the blackness had reached her shoulder, and he squeezed her hand against the stone. With a crack, the soul stone energy was released, and he stepped back. Even in the best, most controlled circumstances, use of a soul stone to heal took many attempts to master. He waited for her unfortunate but inevitable failure and death. What he could not have predicted was the great control she had over the soul stone. Karai was the master of spirits, and soul stones embodied the spiritual energy that fueled them all. In an elaborate twist of fate, she not only absorbed the soulstone energy, binding it to her body, but dispelled the blight from within her. Immediately, the blackened color receded and was replaced by the pink flesh of her grisly wound. The fibers of her putrefied tissues lashed out to reform her forearm. Karai watched in amazement as the flesh stitched itself into a whole limb and feeling returned to her wiggling fingers. That son of a bitch has my ring, she said vehemently. Nicodem smiled approvingly at her incredible control and recovery despite the inane obsession with the trinket. Behind the master and his student, Mortimer appeared from the hall. Sir, preparations are complete. The charges are primed. Are we leaving or fighting? Nicodem saw the anger well up in Karai again, and her eagerness to return to the battle. He sharply grasped her chin, however, and forced her eyes to consider his own. This tower is lost. He pointed over his shoulder at the gunfire closing upon them. Those are guild officers. A battle against this powerful creature and the guild forces cannot be easily won. We will win your revenge another day. He pulled her to her feet and forcefully took her from the room while Hamlin worked, ignoring their every action. Near the bottom right corner of the mechanical device was an orbit that was missing its cog. Karai's ring fit neatly into the empty space as he slid it into place with a satisfying click. Then, producing a soul stone he'd recovered from the abandoned carts in the sewer, he touched the stone against the device and a cloudy energy poured from it. Energized, Karai's ring began to slowly turn on its spindle. The emeralds along its circumference acted as a gear's teeth and manipulated neighboring cogs to spin. The device rang with a metallic song as the gears moved and the gemstone stars began to dance in their orbit. Hamlin was most focused on the motion of the red gemstone, and when it began to move, he leapt from where he crouched and went to the window to observe the morning sky. As he adjusted the knobs on the device, he saw the red star streak from the heavens. He watched the falling star in its arc towards the city. Far from the towering buildings and narrow streets of Malifaux, Seamus conducted his own research into this world's past. His encounter with the grave-spirited Kythera had galvanized his sense of purpose. The coded and mystical nature of old Malifaux's texts had been revealed, and the forces they described were real, tangible things that offered a power to be leveraged against reality itself. It was a dank cave that had called to him from some repeated metaphor scattered throughout some forgotten set of books. He held a gas lamp against the glassy walls of the cavern and saw the evidence of a previous presence scratched in elaborate but barely recognizable text in an unknown language.
As he studied the aged message, he could hear the sloshing of Molly, his clumsy assistant, working behind him. He had dressed his undead associate as a caricature of an imperial explorer with canvas shorts, a pith helmet, and a terrible plaid sport coat. The sloshing paused long enough for the creature to cough up a lungful of blood, and she spat it into a well-stained bloody cloth. Molly, girl, please. A man needs silence, especially in his life, Seamus remarked without turning his head from the writing on the wall. Shyness? Molly spoke with a momentary wheeze. Something's happening. The gate is open, Seamus, she said cryptically. Gate? What gate are you jabbering about? Just pipe down now, Molly girl. I haven't the patience for your rambling. He rolled his eyes and continued scanning the spiralling web-like script faintly etched upon the stone. Molly turned her head and looked out at the mouth of the cave. The sky lit up red as the fiery comet sped across the firmament. She said no more. Seamus would be aware of that gate's opening momentarily. Samael stood guard just outside the tiny one-room library, abandoned for many years despite its relative close proximity to Malifaux. 
Although the badlands south of the great city were a desert landscape, they did not retain the heat of the bayou to the east. He pulled his buffalo-hide hat closer to his eyes and drew the oiled duster tight about his torso to combat the biting wind. Sonia sat at the same makeshift desk she'd been at since late the previous afternoon. A small stack of books on either side of her and a larger stack piled haphazardly on the floor. Those were her irrelevant books, skimmed through and discarded. She sat on the edge of exhaustion, writing frantically in her logbook the official record of her position. Samael knew that her notes were of a considerably different nature than the formal documents they were expected to keep and turn in. Many texts relating to astrology, she wrote. The culture of old Malifaux attached a great amount of mysticism to the night sky, and each constellation was attributed a vast mythology. The final days of old Malifaux were heralded by the appearance of a red star hovering over the horizon. The heavens were held in high esteem by this ancient people. It was when the coven of powerful tyrants that ruled that world dared to subject the night sky to their meddling that the people of old Malifaux were inspired to revolt. The ultimate result of their rebellion was the artificial breach located within the Kythera ruins. It was the activation of this breach that brought about the cataclysm that would doom this world's people. Subjected to the very substance of death, survivors of the cataclysm were forced to adapt in dramatic ways. These divergent adaptations are manifested today by the variety of native creatures we call Neverborn. Activities pursued by particular covens of Neverborn, and particularly by those known as Nephilim, are extremely puzzling. It has been the opinion of the Guild that these creatures possess an alien, primitive, and unknowable intellect, and that their activities lack any logical motivation. These Neverborn pursue unknown agendas that have their roots in the days of old Malifaux. That they have managed to survive in the days after Kythera suggests that members of the Tyrant Coven might also survive. This research suggests that the Nephilim continue to pursue their campaign against these Tyrant entities, ancient creatures with spectral connections to life and vast in power. Fortunately, their ability to interact and influence the tangible world is, as yet, very limited. One of these Tyrants is referred to in text by a particular ideogram an eye surrounded by a coil serpent. This symbol is also used to name the red star that hangs over Kythera. Samael sipped his morning coffee, turning the brim of his hat against the cold wind blowing desert sand in his tired eyes. His head cocked slightly. His eye caught the glint of red light illuminating the indigo sky of early morning. It was far larger than a mere shooting star. Uh, Sonya, he called. Any idea what the hell that is? She looked up and went to the open entry of the building behind Samael, seeing the red star streak across the sky, the fiery light hurtling towards the ground. Oh, shit, she muttered. Samael, she whispered in a tone of fear and urgency he was unaccustomed to hearing from her. He turned quickly to her as she said, I don't know what's going to happen next, Sonia. Just be ready. And Sam... She hesitated, looking beyond him thoughtfully. She looked into his eyes. If things don't go well, I want you to know that it was an honor working with you. The blazing red meteor descended, drawing closer. It would strike just beyond the city, he figured. Probably near the bayou. Deep in the bayou, a hard day's ride far to the southeast of Malifaux City, Perdita and her family stood before the towering serpent statue. Many bones were scattered around the base, and the deeply weathered remains of stone-carved walls were found just beyond it, 
mostly consumed by weather and lush vegetation over many years. Where the hell you think it is? Francisco asked. Santiago, typically charging into the thick of things before thinking, said, Let's pull those vines off it and see what we got. Don't seem nearly as worn down as the rest of the building over there. Perdita shook her head. I don't know, Hermano. Sonia warned us to stay away from it, and I'm inclined to agree. It is strange that the rest of those ruins you and Nino found are so weathered. This isn't. This don't seem like much. He picked up a short stick and hefted it at the statue. It sailed up and struck the head of the snake and fell, with nothing at all extraordinary. Looking up at that moment, following the trajectory of the stick, they each saw the glowing red meteor plummeting from the sky. It looked like it was coming straight at them. Francisco growled. Damn it, Santiago, he said. What have you done now? The halo of bright fire descended with frightening speed. Each member of the Ortega clan fled from the summit of that hill as the fiery meteor filled the sky overhead, clearly falling directly upon their location. Each ran as far as they dared before diving for cover behind trees or fallen logs. The falling star struck directly upon the snake statue as if it were an angry fist, punching through paper with a deep whoomph each could feel rattle his chest. It moved too quickly to see what it was, though it took up as much space as a small house. The passing of the red mass left no physical mark upon the statue, save the blowing of the vine's leaves like a breeze. The Ortegas looked around at each other, confused. Santiago snorted and Nino shrugged. They stepped from behind their respective hiding places and approached the statue cautiously. Francisco pushed his sombrero from his head, and it rested upon his upper back as he scratched his head in bewilderment. He said, That sure was strange. Thought we were dead for a minute. Perdita nodded. See. Si. She squinted at the thing. She said, Its eyes. The eyes of the statue were hidden by thick vegetation but a faint azure light slowly rose from the deep recesses. It intensified and changed, quickly growing bright, shifting to a bright green all before they could say anything about it. A deep, ringing chime issued from within the monolith. A violent eruption of energy burst from its head. Like a circular wave rippling away from a stone dropped into a still pond, a great wave of screaming energy, thick and opaque, the glowing purple eddies of countless spiritual forces unleashed upon the world at once. No physical indication marked its passing save a brief swaying of the vegetation in its wake. Towering well over fifty feet, the great wave moved out from the hill. It struck the Ortegas faster than they could perceive what was happening and threw them to the ground as screaming voices howled in their minds, forcing Santiago, Nino, and Papa to press open palms against the raging pain of their head. The wave spread swiftly. Radiating beyond them through the bayou and toward the city in several blinks of the eye. Everyone had washed over felt the great screaming energy within their minds. Every animal, too, felt its crippling pain as even the frogs around them ceased their chirping and cowered for a moment in pain. Every settler at the mining camps and within Malifaux was struck by the unexpected lashing of power. And each would later recount this shared pain as the event. People staggered, confused and nauseous, all to varying degrees of intensity some much more violent than others. Some temporarily lost their vision, and everyone saw flashing spots before their eyes for the remainder of the day and into the next. They could all see the same strange purple wall barrel upon them and pass through like the wind, leaving only that splitting headache. 
Not everyone understood that the wall of energy that struck them affected people in greater degrees than others because of their various strength and control of the magical forces that drew them to Malifaux in the first place. While most men and women felt a spiritual affinity, most never felt the true control and mastery of the invisible and imperceptible magical forces around them. Some were strong in the arcane arts without ever knowing it, and those were reduced to retching and whimpering through the pain in their minds. Francisco might have been one of those powerful men, more attuned to the magical forces around him than he ever realized. As the great wave passed over him, so intense at the epicenter of the blast, he fell back groaning as he clutched his head, rolling in agony in the wet grasses of the swamp. Shaking his own debilitating pain away, Santiago went to his aid. Though he could do nothing to help, with a protective instinct he cradled his elder brother's head in his lap while he whimpered uncontrollably. Nino, still rubbing the pain from his flashing eyes, caught sight of Perdita. Gasping, he bolted upright, exclaiming, Dios mío! Perdita was floating three feet off the ground, arms outstretched and back arched so that her face pointed toward the sky. Her mouth was open in a silent scream. She was frozen in the air, hovering and unmoving. Pandora and Candy walked alone through the narrow alleys between shops on Malifaux's west side. Candy skipped beside the elder Neverborn who carried the small box of woes in the crook of her arm. She was jubilant while Pandora merely smiled, keeping a vigilant eye upon the cobblestones before them, twisting around buildings and out of sight. The sun rose, but the alleys maintained the depths of darkness they needed to retreat from the city. At night they could easily pass as humans, allowing them to infiltrate the city with ease and terrorize the outlanders that took their new homes for granted. In full light of day, however, their skin took on that pale translucency that the humans could identify as too cool and white to be exactly right. Hidden in that alley, neither could see the red meteor descend upon Malifaux, nor could they see the circular wave of energy wash across the landscape from the point of impact. Did you see that woman scream? Candy asked. The mother. And she grimaced at the word, closing her eyes and shuddering as though it were too foul and despicable. Did you even get that dad to scream? I wanted to see you make him cry. Pandora shushed the other, even as she chuckled. Not the father this time. He... Pandora never finished her sentence. At that moment, the inescapable purple wave passed intangibly through the building beside them and engulfed the girls as it raced on, unimpeded by the stone buildings. Candy, like many others struck by the wave, shrieked in pain, clutching her head. She moaned and shook. Pandora suffered a different fate. The box fell from her hip and much of the energy of the mystical wave lingered upon her. The soul energy bombarded her, pouring in and out of her magical box, becoming great and terrible woes she had never imagined. They struck through her like small versions of the great wave, and became a torrent of wailing voices. Anguish and trauma she had inflicted upon others rebounded upon her, as the memory of each painful act she had ever caused another raced through her mind as disembodied glowing forms with vague humanoid faces drove into her. Some poured at her back, crawling across her, while others swirled around her body. Those that stayed upon her sought to imprint themselves upon her flesh and clothing, the moaning faces clear as they writhed about her coat and pale skin. The woes drew her into the air, buffeting her with hate and sadness and distress. Candy could barely see Pandora through the great column of glowing entities and covered her eyes against the bright light. Pandora could take no more. Candy heard her voice bellow thunderously from within the great swirling column. Suffer! The woes rose up from her and arced down, seeking a human host to torment, 
sneaking around Candy to disappear through the walls of the building beside her. Screams quickly followed from all around them. Rasputina left the comfort of December's temple far north of Malifaux. Hidden in the side of a mountain, it was well constructed and furnished, allowing a person to forget it was part of a very large mountain. She stepped into the rough cave that served as its entrance, dark and cold, though she no longer felt the pangs of the bitter wind that swept through the mouth of the cave and struck against her exposed skin. Rasputina spoke to one of the three silent ones attending her. The woman had no tongue, of course, as all women's tongues are removed by December's priests, to prevent him from choosing them as vessels as his interests and power grow. Perhaps fortunate, Rasputina had escaped a similar fate, though the events leading to the conflict at Kythera left her questioning how fortunate she might truly be. This girl had been particularly abused by the higher priests, before Rasputina had arrived to realign the hierarchy, elevating the silent ones to their proper station. The few male acolytes, standing guard on either side of the temple entrance beyond the rough rock, grew fearful in the presence of both Rasputina and the three silent ones, and discreetly withdrew into the warm chambers hidden within. The girl had great resolve, Rasputina's sense, and defiance in her young face. Unlike the others, she refused to communicate to any save Rasputina. Without a name, they all called her Snow, because similar to Rasputina, the girl demonstrated little awareness of the suffering cold. The guild have abandoned the miners and intend to send them no aid, she asked the girl. Snow pulled her fur hood away from her head and nodded agreement, grunting quietly. Then we're out of food, too. I needed them to send reinforcements and try to re-establish the mines up here. The mouth of the cave blew with the bite of an unnatural winter she had intensified and reinforced shrouding them from pursuit and cutting off the supply lines with a perpetual drive of snow and ice. I'm out of stones. The storm will dissipate by midday, she said to the young girl who merely nodded, helpless to change the circumstance. The two silent ones at the entrance to the cave, keeping watch on the rocky path up the side of the mountain, leapt forward animated and urgent. One motioned frantically with a hand bound in a thick fur mitten. She made guttural uh sounds, trying to speak. Rasputina and the other young silent one ran to the mouth of the cave. The rock face fell away sharply below them, but the slope evened out some, allowing her three ice garmin and a towering golem to stand guard, immobile as statues but ever vigilant. Far beyond the mountain's edge and into the hills to the south, she could see a large purple wall of roiling energy spread further away from an epicenter like a great tidal wave. It moved quickly across the hills and approached the mountain. Faster than she could imagine, it ascended the mountain, the rocky vertical terrain doing nothing to slow it, passing through everything as if it were not even there. It struck her Garmin, and as it passed, they shook with a faintly audible high-pitched ring and exploded in shards of ice. The golem, too, erupted as the wave passed through it, sending sharp shards of icy daggers and large blocks of ice against the face of the mountain. Rasputina lifted her arm to her face, instinctively trying to ward off the glowing wall that consumed her effortlessly. She screamed as her body, mind, and soul was inundated with a great surge of magical energy, very similar to the effect of a soul stone, but magnified a hundredfold. The three silent ones around her groaned mutely, their heads thrown back, 
their arms stretched out and backs bent so their mouths, agape, faced the ceiling of the cave. They were lifted by the spiritual energy consuming them, rising above the cold stone, their thick fur-covered feet dangling as they slowly revolved around Rasputina, also lifted from the ground by the deeply magical forces burrowing within her. Together, the four women rotated slowly and left the cave, hovering above the rocks and supported by the magical energy and a sharply intensified gale of wind and sleep. The purple wave had moved on, continuing to rage across the land, but the influx of magic within them would not abate. The swirling storm above drew together, as the wind and dark clouds pulled inward, directly above Rasputina until it was a small cloud, dense and angry, spinning in a black tempest of sleet and wind as lightning cracked within it. It unleashed its full, wintry fury in a pillar of wind down upon Rasputina. Her upturned face took the gale, and it lashed against her flesh. Her arms were pinned to her side as she was buffeted, but still she was held aloft, as were the three girls, beaten madly by the supernatural storm. The wind howled, and they heard the rising intonation of a great voice made of the gale. The key has been found. The gateway is open, it said. The red prison has fallen. We will ascend. The ritual is nearly complete. Far from the northern mountains to the south of Malifaux, the ring of energy struck the abandoned town Sonia and Samael had found where she continued her research into the very phenomenon about to befall her. Alone among the living settlers on Malifaux, she had a vague understanding of the portents about this day, and thought she would be in a position to stop it. As the purple wave could be seen through gaps between the small buildings of the town, and then towering over them, she wondered if she would live beyond the day. It struck her and Samael. As she had so many times before focused her power to burn the souls of those violating the dark magic of this world, the soul energy burned deep within her. Consumed by the magical flame, she screamed as she left the ground, her arms outstretched. Containing it, trying to master it and stifle it would burn her out, she knew, reducing her to a shell of thought and emotion. She let the infusion of magic have its way with her, and she exploded in a great column of fire, engulfed within the great conflagration. Samael struggled against the pain, gasping and sick. Every small movement he made throbbed against his skull, yet he staggered away from the consuming fire. It raged and growled. Vague faces of fire, moaning in apparent anguish, circled her, obscuring her in flame. Every master of soulstone in Malifaux experienced the same transcendence. The power infused them, changing them, drawing their natural power out and embodying it in an external manifestation of their control and abilities. The wave struck Nicodem and Karai while they retreated through the back of his observatory fortress. Much like the others in Malifaux, Nicodem cried out, dropping his cane. He clutched his chest and head as he was lifted to the heavens and moaned in agony. His eyes glowed with the same purple as the unnatural wave of energy. Karai doubled over, arms futilely protecting her head, while Mortimer, confused and suddenly fighting a painful headache of his own, stumbled back against the wall of the building, which was about to explode any minute. They stood upon a grassy garden, untended for centuries. Mortimer felt a slight tremor, and the earth moaned faintly. Suddenly, a skeletal hand burst from the ground before him, then more and more all around. 
arms long decayed beyond the ability of any resurrectionist master to reanimate clawed at the surface pulling forgotten bodies from the packed soil the garden had perhaps never been a graveyard but over the vast history of the planet countless bodies had fallen and fully decomposed the intensified power of nicodem unleashed called those pieces together enough so they would rise and serve him he revelled in the power as whole bodies clambered to the surface twisted broken incomplete yet desperate to serve him they found him groping their leathery flesh and bone hands upon him raising him up and clambering upon one another to touch him in a kind of reverence karai unlike all the others succumbed to the deep pain within her mind perhaps if she had more experience with soulstone and the mastery of the arcane art nicodem hoped to instill upon her her ascension at the passing of the spiritual wave might have called forth a veritable army of spirits to pay homage to her power as the undead horde had come at nicodem's subconscious calling her own great spirit the akirio however was dragged out of karai as it heard the call of the innumerable wave of spirits bombarding her its ethereal presence grew strong and tangible her hair billowing around her head like fire on the wind it was that part of her soul that portion fractured from the rest that contained her hate her desire for revenge her grudge it burned with a terrible heat that communicated well its carnal nature it was the image of the woman's spirit but twisted with disgust into a monster capable of gruesome carnage she surveyed the risen dead and dismissed the pillar of bodies surrounding nicodem irrelevant and minuscule the akirio spun upon mortimer and he felt that unnatural heat emanating from her sweat beading on his flesh as she growled and a ghostly wind breathed hot and wet upon him it felt the pangs of anger and hatred from karai the sense of retribution struck deep, but the fat man cowering before it was not part of Karai's hatred. Where? his own voice asked in his mind. His eyes were as wide as his open mouth, and he could not form the words. He didn't know what it was talking about, but he hitched a thumb toward the building they'd just abandoned. It lunged at him, howling in rage only inches from his face. He closed his eyes. Sure, she was about to eat him or drag him to hell or some other unpleasant thing. Mortimer was nothing to her. And she looked up to the tower at the source of the unlocking and this puncture between worlds. She passed through Mortimer and flew madly through the tower, seeking the source of the atrocity committed. Mortimer, having another mighty wave of spiritual energy pass through him only moments after the first, simply sighed. Then he fainted, falling beside Karai. The Akirio found him easily. Drawn to the origin of her own physical manifestation, the ring given to Karai, she entered the chamber and howled in rage. Hamlin stood upon a roiling mass of vermin that enveloped his lower limbs, lifting him from the ground. His arms outstretched, his mouth turned upward in a gape as dark breath emanated in a fog of pestilence and decay that grew as his power intensified. Soon it would be too strong to stop and he would breathe it upon the world, sending out his decay to consume every living thing. The blackness would devour them all, and he would thrive on the power of the pests that fed upon the lingering soul energy the decaying world provided. The ancient lock stood open at his feet, the delicate gear spinning frantically with her ring twirling in the middle, whistling in its wild rotation. The red cage had fallen. 
unleashing the gate between worlds. But the red gem in the device had not completed the rotation to the bottom of the device that would signify the completion of the ceremony. She hurtled toward her adversary, the despicable creature wearing the guise of a human. Her unearthly claws reached out for the spinning ring when Hamlin's black staff, glowing at the end in deepest purple, waved toward her and a torrent of rats, maggots, and other vermin splashed forward at her, following the arc of his arm. They struck her physically despite her intangible form and drove her backward, striking her upon the wall. You think you can stop me now? he asked. The voice just a disembodied and vibrating echo caused by the grinding and buzzing bodies of the vermin against one another throughout the room. The Black Death, gaseous and filled with tiny gnats, swarmed toward her, and she knew even in her deathly state it would consume even her. She clawed at the vermin surrounding her, killing everything she touched, but even as she did, more rats and insects filled the void. Hamlin resumed his meditation, summoning more and more of the soul energy from the plane between worlds. He would ascend after eons of planning and waiting, imprisoned in a vague semblance of life, never truly immortal and nearly impotent. Now, feeling the release of that endless power of death, he would be the one to ascend and would be allowed to move on to master the next world, a world rife with power enough to sustain even him. The death energy enveloped him, filling him and thrilling every fibre of his tangible existence and beyond. He felt the elation as the red gem dropped in the lock mechanism, bringing him closer to the inevitable end of this world and the beginning of his next. The power grew, and his mind barely registered the world of Malifaux and its living creatures. He would not have registered the quick sound of a click of a gear before him if not for the accompanying collapse of power, akin to being struck in the stomach, taking the wind from him so violently. He staggered from the mound of vermin that lost the strength to sustain him. What? he gasped. Before him stood the Akirio, the green serpent ring in her ghostly claw. How? he asked, alarmed and disbelieving. She smiled wickedly and motioned behind her at the creatures she summoned, vaguely human-like and frantically gorging. Their once human mouths opened wider than the circumference of their heads, and their great mummified bellies distended beyond them abnormally as they scooped great handfuls of maggots and squirming rats into their snapping moors. Gaki, she said with his own voice inside her own mind. Insatiable. Hamlin, stunned and powerless from the moment the ring was pulled from the device, raised his staff to strike her. But she sprang forward, grabbing him with both claws. She flew through the room in a rush, shrieking in anger. Not slowing, she struck the far wall. Though her intangible form flew effortlessly through the brickwork, Hamlin's physical form struck it with a resounding crash, cracking the mortar. His false body ruptured, sending the internal contents splashing away in an explosion of vermin and insects. The Akirio flew from the building and doubled back, knowing that the great being would only be temporarily slowed. He must be destroyed. Finally. As she descended, however... The charges set by Mortimer and the boilers beneath the observatory and around the structure began the sequence of detonations, destroying the building in rapidly exploding bursts. The fires of spiritual energy engulfing Sonya lost the soul energy that fueled them when Akirio pulled the ring from the ceremonial device that had loosed the containment of the puncture between worlds. She fell, exhausted as those fires dissipated, 
her eyes blinking rapidly in the confusion and pain that racked her mind and body. You okay? Samael asked nervously as he reached her side. She was in too much pain to answer, but stared up at him, a weak smile reassuring him. Marcus leapt through the air, the power of many beasts urging him to hunt in a way he had never before experienced. The energy that fueled him quickly waned as the ring was pulled from the mechanism many miles away. He fell bodily, rolling as he returned to normal, the beast energy drawn from him. The new woes bombarding Pandora, who was held aloft by their assault, circled her and moved through her tangible form. Some, unable to breach the greater mass of spirits, sought out candy and struck similarly against her. The wailing in her head intensified, and she staggered backward against the wall. Unexpectedly, the passing of the wave twisted not only her mind, but caused her body to spasm, racking her against the stonework. Her limbs and torso twisted and elongated with the same celerity as a quickly grown Nephilim might experience after consuming enough blood. For Candy, she was one moment a young girl, and the next she'd become a young woman, much the peer of Pandora, and the small skirt that once stretched to her knees now barely covered her. She clutched the sides of her head, feeling as though her very skull might split. The voices laughed and whispered in her mind. The pain was unbearable. Pandora, too, moaned as the woes dissipated, returning to their box. Candy laughed through the pain. She reveled in it. Hearing Pandora whimpering near her brought a strange titillation to the changed young woman. As the shrieking of people echoed through the back alley, Candy's laughter rose to an equal shriek, hideous and full of animosity. Pandora could barely lift herself from the cobblestones. She struggled to look upon the changed girl concern mounting as Candy, still clutching the sides of her head, shrieked in pain and glee. Dr. McMorning's gloved fingers clawed at the dissection table, and he pulled himself upright from the tiled floor of his lab. He shook his head, dispelling the confusion. Around him were the strange amalgamations of body parts, assembled and animated at his whim into powerful and amazing creatures, all extensions of his own will and encompassing the unique strengths of their original hosts. He sighed. They were not stitched together, but merely held in place by his own unlocked potential. Losing that newfound strength so abruptly, however, he watched as the body parts fell from one another like a tower of children's blocks suddenly toppled. Rasputina was mute as the storm raged down upon her, but not because her tongue had been severed by December's priests. She hovered in the midst of the great entity, December basking in great warmth of her spirit even as her body froze in the blasting of his wintry might. It was illusory warmth, however, as her heart had long been frozen by the rites that claimed her as December's. She saw his plan of ascension, though she marvelled at the calm in his mind upon hers, as it stood in such great contrast to the fury he exhibited upon her flesh. He does not have my piece of the key. She wanted to ask more but could not even form the words in her mind. You must be protected, he said, the wind and ice cutting into her flesh since he'd been summoned gathered on the mountain face below her. It swirled and tossed the smaller rocks and debris about. His presence pushed against her will, and the girls revolving around her fell down the sheer cliff face and into the heart of the density of the storm raging now upon the mountain. She was still held aloft, carried back to the edge of the cave's mouth. 
The wind below her took shape and held together as the last of the clouds above poured down into it. Wind, snow, and daggers of ice shot out of the great mass, and circled back to become part of the dense storm. It struck her, pressing her own identity aside so that December could claim her as his own. She would be lost, forever, and December would rise again in reincarnation through her. It was the moment he had chosen for her, to be lost as fate decreed. Rasputina could barely think as her own frail mind was consumed by the tyrant entity. She felt the pummeling wind from the sphere. It was only a chaotic ball of dense winter storm, yet it leapt toward her up the mountainside. Amidst the gale and ice she saw the vague form of a great white lion, the bulk of the sleeting wind about its indistinct head like a mane. It rose up on its back legs made of dense snow, and it took on a slightly humanoid form. It howled at her, and the wind drove her back, but her own icy spirit withstood it, and she stared it down. She had been a pawn for too long, and her strength and will had grown considerably since December had chosen her. She pushed back against his domination, knowing that she could never beat him. Rather than deny him a host, with a will much greater than even she was aware, she pressed it out and away, and down into the silent one called Snow. The girl was more than fifty feet below, her body broken from the fall. In the great cold of the mountainside, intensified tenfold by the presence of December, her dead flesh and blood was frozen so that she was translucent white and blue. Rasputina devoured the last of the great spirit energy, and tied December's will to snow even as he became the storm. He had chosen her, though, and withdrew lest he be confined in a weaker vessel. Part of him lingered within the storm and the girl. Snow rose, emotionless and chilled, alive once more, but her flesh still frozen. Snow turned to the storm, bound to her will as she was bound to Rasputina's. It howled again like a hurricane ravaging everything around it, but it knew she was its master. The creature might have originally been a mighty spirit unleashed by the unlocking of the gate, used by December to take his first step towards the ascension he had prepared for, but it was bound to Rasputina, who commanded it now. Snowstorm, she said of the two. The spiritual beast howled again above the icy figure of the pale girl, and the wind blew cold against the rock face. You are mine, it snorted angrily knowing that it must obey her. Zoraida stood amidst frogs, silurids, and other bio-creatures that had heeded her unspoken call, ready to serve and obey. The power of the great wave left her, and they did too. She returned to her hut and readied a scrying pot in the essential elements necessary for a divination. She first consulted the deck of cards she kept in her sewing kit. She pulled it from beneath scraps of tightly woven burlap, leftovers from the puppet she made, focusing upon the deck, Attaching her magical will to the divination, she flipped the first card. A two of tomes. Two books needed to find the answer. Queen of Rams. A female warrior. Face cards needed a following flip to denote their meaning, and she flipped the black joker. Death. Another card turned, revealing the ten of crows. The necropolis. More cards flipped. Some with meanings too obscure for her to make out and the odd connections they foretold made less and less sense. Even when she thought she had the understanding of a set, the next would either contradict it or carry the interaction of fate in a path that could not be discerned. 
Why would the female warrior die and find physical power at the necropolis? The divination she was sure would hold true. She continued to examine the cards, looking for the interaction of the Neverborn in the scheme of their unfolding destiny. The magical charge waned in all of them, returning the inhabitants of Malifaux to their normal state, though disoriented, confused, and in deep exhaustion and mental pain. Perdita, the first to be hit, at the very epicenter of the mystical blast, fell to the ground, her arms outstretched. Santiago and Francisco were at her side in an instant, and Nino held Papa, bewildered and dazed, just paces away. Cisco, Santiago whispered urgently. She's not breathing. Francisco shook her. Padita, he yelled, shaking her again. Padita! He slapped her face, hoping the strike might awaken her from the ordeal. Only moments had passed since the red object had struck the statue and the purple wave had been unleashed. A rumbling in the ground beneath them quickly intensified. You've got to be kidding, Santiago muttered. What the hell? Go, Francisco said, lifting her and running. He hauled her away as the ground around the serpent gave way, falling into a sinkhole in an expanding circle. The mud and trees fell just paces behind them as they ran. Neither Francisco nor Santiago bothered to look back, though Nino was wide-eyed and scared. The rumbling subsided, and they were able to stop, looking back at the hole that spanned more than fifty yards. Cautiously, they stepped to the edge of the great pit that descended beyond the depth of light. The large snake statue still stood at the center of the hole, a thick pillar supporting it down into the blackness. It looked like polished black marble or obsidian, with lighter veins of pink, green, and pale lavender. After a moment, they could see the veins slowly moving around the massive column, swirling across one another very similar to the glowing wave that had struck each of them. A foul smell of long, stagnant air hit them, and they recoiled. It was unique and identifiable to each of them as the smell of death. Perdita suddenly coughed, and her body shook in Francisco's arms. He hugged her tightly and set her down, cradling her in his arms. She smiled weakly and looked up at him. He nearly dropped her and fought against the urge to jump back. Her eyes were pools of black, with faint strands of silver and purple moving across them. Flecks of red popped faintly as little dots of color that faded into the black to be replaced by more. She coughed again and slumped against Francisco's chest. He held her tightly but looked to his family, clearly distressed. We're in trouble, she whispered. The stench of old death wafted thicker from the pit. The sound of a high screeching rose in echoes from its depth. A large hand, bigger than a grown man's chest, grabbed hold of the edge near them. Its long, black claws sank into the soil as it pulled itself from the hole. Hoffman pressed his torso upright as the energy within him dissipated. The hunter had merged with all the metal fragments from around the area. Whether wrought iron gates or simple metal hinges torn from their framework, making it a towering new construct, no doubt an extension of his will while under the influence of the strange spirit energy that had overwhelmed him. Now, however, it stood immobile, unable to function after his subconscious will twisted and deformed it. He didn't have time to consider the ramifications of its loss, for at that moment a series of time detonations blew out the first floor of the tower before him. The colossal structure imploded and fell.
The collapse sent out a violent shockwave and a shower of dust and debris that consumed the city blocks around it. Shielding his eyes with one hand, the other could not support his weight, and he fell to an elbow. His legs limped behind him. No, he gasped. Justice. The judge. They were still within the structure, under the debris. He called out with his mind for the hunter to pick him up, forgetting it had been destroyed by his will. He searched the area with his mind for a connection to the constructs brought with justice, but he had sent them in as support for the lady and the judge. They were gone. He realized that the loss of the constructs and justice was the harbinger of his own doom. He was alone there in the quarantine zone, crippled and defenseless. The remains of the great observatory burned in the morning light, sending smoke and ash far into the sky. Epilogue. What the hell happened in here anyway? Franklin Derrick, the youngest of the hastily assembled carpenters, asked, a bit too brazenly, too loud for the other men in the room whose eyes stared at him intently. He had a smile on his face, thinking he would bring some levity to the arduous work of cleaning and repairing the Governor General's study. The foreman, Milo Holmes, grabbed his arm from behind, spinning him with a heavy grip. The boy was aghast at the vehemence behind Milo's cold grey eyes and the deep sneer on his lips behind the sparse white whiskers on his face. You stay focused on this job, boy, he growled in a tight whisper, his eyes darting beyond the large room to the light pouring in through the open door wall and the two figures standing on the balcony. He nearly spat at the boy as he cursed. Damn you if he hears. He released Franklin's arms with a thrust and silently motioned for him to resume work. Holmes turned from him and pushed his flat shovel through debris of fallen plaster and splintered wood, seeming to have been torn apart by a bomb blast, though there was no evidence of burning or other use of explosives. Franklin looked to the other workmen for support, motioning to Milo as if the old man were crazy. He received no support from them as they simply shook their heads and refocused on the task of digging through the debris. Two of the men moved apart from the journeyman carpenter, and Franklin Derrick soon felt exposed and vulnerable. Alone in the middle of the room, shoving around some debris, glaring at the others for his rejection and chastisement, still perplexed by their cold behaviour. Having worked with them for several weeks on other projects, they were typically a boisterous and jovial crew. The two men that had moved away from the young Franklin busied themselves with the remains of what used to be a large open fireplace. The quarried stones of granite were rare in these parts, and only a few of the sparkling stones could be reused. The majority were shattered crushed as if between the molars of an old Nephilim, as the saying goes. The smaller remains of the once large stones were piled with the granite dust, but the larger pieces were hefted in heavy sacks. The two men looked to the balcony where they'd previously carried them to dump over the railing, to be cleaned from where they fell later. The workmen paused, remembering that they were no longer alone in the repair of the devastated study, and actually carried them through the mansion and down the stairs, all to avoid the presence of the Governor-General, 
and his secretary upon the balcony. Neither Franklin, Milo, nor the other men working in the chamber could hear the two men upon the balcony speak in their atypically quiet conversations. Made a report on specific details of the event, the Governor-General asked of his secretary, Lucius Matteson. Lucius adjusted the wire rim Pazney glasses resting upon the bridge of his thin nose. The bright light of the noonday sun striking opaque upon the lenses. Not as yet, sir, the small man said. Scholars are working on it. Specific books on the subject of this energy wave are missing from the library archive, he said stoically. Crib? Unknown. They were not checked out appropriately. Although these key tomes were accessible only by a select few, the highest-ranking officials in each branch, myself, and a handful of your top advisers. Crib, the governor growled. Sure, it was her, without doubt. She's still not returned to her post. She has not. Whereabouts unknown. Be sure I'm aware of her return the moment she sets foot in Malifaux. Certainly. The bright light of the sun beating down upon them did not cause the governor to so much as squint against its harsh light, but he inquired, The special glasses I requested. Lucius withdrew the black lens spectacles from the pocket of his vest and handed them to the governor. Turning to take them, the swirling purple and faintly silver bands that roiled in the black fields that dominated what were once normal eyes were visible to his secretary. How long until this fades completely? he asked. Lucius had the rare courage to look intently upon the governor, to stare directly into his eyes without turning away. The glowing has subsided significantly in just the past twenty-four hours. The swirling eddies are still quite visible, and the black depth has not abated. I'll have a better idea in the next day. Perhaps four or five days, estimated. The governor's lips drew down in a scowl when he cursed. Hooking the iron arms of the spectacles over his ears, he hid his eyes behind the dark lenses. He glanced at the men working on repairing the devastated remains of his study. The scholars that witnessed your transformation during the event? Disposed of. Sorry, he said, correcting his terminology. Missing, sir. Missing. The governor nodded turning back to stare down the long, sloping hill to Malifaux a mile distant. When these men have finished repairing the study, they will find themselves missing too. Of course. And you will take care of it yourself. No other agents will be involved. Naturally. It is a pleasure to evoke my will again, at your discretion, of course. Yes. The time of your slinking in the darkness nears an end. Remain patient. Remain vigilant. Secretary Lucius Matteson strode through the debris that was once an ornate and beautiful study. He stepped past the carpenters working with eyes turned submissively away. They would soon be among the few to see his power manifest. As with everyone who bore witness to his secret abilities, they too would be unable to share his secret. The Governor-General, with his arms behind his back, surveyed his city from the balcony that granted him a view of every district. Sonia Crid might not be controllable now, he speculated. If she had grown aware of his own machinations, she would have to face Lucius too, or worse. His plans were finally coming to fruition. The days of sedition by the insignificant rabble neared an end.